Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Vanishing Prince by G.K. Chesterton, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 2. There was a silence, and Sir Walter considered the papers before him with an abstracted eye. At last he spoke. Quite so, but look here. If the local feeling is as lively as that, there are a good many points to consider. I believe the new act will enable me to collar him now if I think it best. But is it best? A serious rising would do us no good in Parliament, and the government has enemies in England as well as Ireland. It won't do if I have done what looks a little like sharp practice and then only raised a revolution. It's all the other way said the man called Wilson, rather quickly. There won't be half so much of a revolution if you arrest him as there will if you leave him loose for three days longer. But anyhow, 
It can't be anything nowadays that the proper police can't manage. Mr. Wilson is a Londoner, said the Irish detective with a smile. Yes, I'm a Cockney, all right, replied Wilson. And I think I'm all the better for that. Especially at this job, oddly enough. Sir Walter seemed slightly amused at the pertinacity of the third officer, and perhaps even more amused at the slight accent with which he spoke, which rendered rather needless his boast about his origin. Do you mean to say, he asked, that you know more about the business here because you have come from London? Sounds funny, I know, but I do believe it, answered Wilson. I believe these affairs want fresh methods, but most of all I believe they want a fresh eye. The superior officers laughed, and the red-haired man went on with a slight touch of temper. Well, look at the facts. See how the fellow got away every time, and you'll understand what I mean. Why was he able to stand in the place of the scarecrow, hidden by nothing but an old hat? Because it was a village policeman who knew the scarecrow was there, was expecting it, and therefore took no notice of it. Now, I never expect a scarecrow. I've never seen one in the street, and I stare at one when I see it in the field. It's a new thing to me and worth noticing. And it was just the same when he hid in the well. You are ready to find a well in a place like that. You look for a well, and so you don't see it. I don't look for it, and therefore I do look at it. It is certainly an idea, said Sir Walter, smiling. But what about the balcony? Balconies are occasionally seen in London, but not rivers right under them, as if it was in Venice, replied Wilson. It is certainly a new idea, repeated Sir Walter, with something like respect. He had all the love of the luxurious classes for new ideas, but he also had a critical faculty, and was inclined to think, after due reflection, that it was a true idea as well. Growing dawn had already turned the window panes from black to grey when Sir Walter got abruptly to his feet. The others rose too, taking this for a signal that the arrest was to be undertaken. But their leader stood for a moment in deep thought, as if conscious that he had come to a parting of the ways. Suddenly the silence was pierced by a long, wailing cry from the dark moors outside. The silence that followed it seemed more startling than the shriek itself, and it lasted until Nolan said heavily, "'Tis the Banshee. Somebody is marked for the grave." His long, large-featured face was as pale as a moon, and it was easy to remember that he was the only Irishman in the room. "'Well, I know that Banshee,' said Wilson cheerfully. "'Ignorant as you think I am of these things.' I talked to that banshee myself an hour ago, and I sent that banshee up to the tower and told her to sing out like that, if she could get a glimpse of our friend writing his proclamation. Do you mean that girl Bridget Royce? asked Morton, drawing his frosty brows together. Has she turned King's evidence to that extent? Yes, answered Wilson. I know very little of these local things you tell me, but I reckon an angry woman is much the same in all countries. Nolan, however, seemed still moody and unlike himself. It's an ugly noise and an ugly business altogether, he said. If it's really the end of Prince Michael, it may well be the end of other things as well. 
When the spirit is on him, he would escape by a ladder of dead men, and wade through that sea as if it were made of blood. Is that the real reason of your pious alarms? asked Wilson, with a slight sneer. The Irishman's pale face blackened with a new passion. I faced as many murderers in County Clare as you ever fought with in Clapham Junction, Mr. Cockney, he said. Hush, please, said Morton sharply. Wilson, you've no kind of right to imply doubt of your superior's conduct. I hope you will prove yourself as courageous and trustworthy as he has always been. The pale face of the red-haired man seemed a shade paler, but he was silent and composed. And Sir Walter went up to Nolan with marked courtesy, saying, Shall we go outside now and get this business done? Dawn had lifted, leaving a wide chasm of white between a great grey cloud and the great grey moorland, beyond which the tower was outlined against the daybreak and the sea. Something in its plain and primitive shape vaguely suggested the dawn in the first days of the earth, in some prehistoric time when even the colours were hardly created, and there was only one blank daylight between cloud and clay. These dead hues were relieved by only one spot of gold, the spark of the candle alight in the window of the lonely tower, and burning on into the broadening daylight. As the group of detectives, followed by a cordon of policemen, spread out into a crescent to cut off all escape, the light in the tower flashed as if it were moved for a moment, and then went out. They knew the man inside had realized the daylight and blown out his candle. There are other windows, aren't there? asked Morton. And a door, of course, somewhere around the corner? Only a round tower has no corners. Another example of my small suggestion, observed Wilson quietly. That queer tower was the first thing I saw when I came to these parts, and I can tell you a little more about it, or at any rate, the outside of it. There are four windows altogether, one a little way from this one, but just out of sight. Those are both on the ground floor, and so is the third on the other side, making a sort of triangle. But the fourth is just above the third, and I suppose it looks on an upper floor. It's only a sort of loft reached by a ladder, said Nolan. I've played in the place when I was a child. It's no more than an empty shell. And his sad face grew sadder, thinking perhaps of the tragedy of his country and the part that he played in it. The man must have got a table and chair at any rate, said Wilson, but no doubt he could have got those from some cottage, if I might make a suggestion, sir, I think we ought to approach all the five entrances at once, so to speak. One of us should go to the door and one to each window. McBride here has a ladder for the upper window. Mr. Horn Fisher languidly turned to his distinguished relative and spoke for the first time. I'm rather a convert to the Cockney School of Psychology, he said in an almost inaudible voice. The others seemed to feel the same influence in different ways, for the group began to break up in the manner indicated. Morton moved toward the window immediately in front of them, where the hidden outlaw had just snuffed the candle. Nolan, a little farther westward to the next window, while Wilson, followed by McBride with the ladder, went round to the two windows at the back. Sir Walter Carey himself, followed by his secretary, 
began to walk round toward the only door to demand admittance in a more regular fashion. "'He will be armed, of course,' remarked Sir Walter casually. "'By all accounts,' replied Hornfisher, "'he can do more with a candlestick than most men with a pistol. "'But he is pretty sure to have the pistol, too.' Even as he spoke, the question was answered with a tongue of thunder. Morton had just placed himself in front of the nearest window, his broad shoulders blocking the aperture. For an instant it was lit from within as with red fire, followed by a thundering throng of echoes. The square shoulders seemed to alter in shape, and the sturdy figure collapsed among the tall, rank grasses at the foot of the tower. A puff of smoke floated from the window like a little cloud. The two men behind rushed to the spot and raised him, but he was dead. Sir Walter straightened himself and called out something that was lost in another noise of firing. It was possible that the police were already avenging their comrade from the other side. Fisher had already raced round to the next window, and a new cry of astonishment from him brought his patron to the same spot. Nolan, the Irish policeman, had also fallen, sprawling all his great length in the grass, and it was red with his blood. He was still alive when they reached him, but there was death on his face and he was only able to make a final gesture telling them that all was over, and, with a broken word and a heroic effort, motioning them on to where his other comrades were besieging the back of the tower. Stunned by these rapid and repeated shocks, the two men could only vaguely obey the gesture, and finding their way to the other windows at the back, they discovered a scene equally startling, if less final and tragic. The other two officers were not dead or mortally wounded, but McBride lay with a broken leg and his ladder on top of him, evidently thrown down from the top window of the tower, while Wilson lay on his face, quite still as if stunned, with his red head among the grey and silver of the sea-holly. In him, however, the impotence was but momentary, for he began to move and rise as the others came round the tower. "'My God, it's like an explosion!' cried Sir Walter, and indeed it was the only word for this unearthly energy, by which one man had been able to deal death or destruction on three sides of the same small triangle at the same instant. Wilson had already scrambled to his feet, and with splendid energy flew again at the window, revolver in hand. He fired twice into the opening, and then disappeared in his own smoke. But the thud of his feet and the shock of a falling chair told them that the intrepid Londoner had managed at last to leap into the room. Then followed a curious silence, and Sir Walter, walking to the window through the thinning smoke, looked into the hollow shell of the ancient tower. Except for Wilson, staring around him, there was nobody there. The inside of the tower was a single empty room, with nothing but a plain wooden chair and a table on which were pens, ink, and paper, and the candlestick. Halfway up the high wall there was a rude timber platform under the upper window, a small loft which was more like a large shelf. It was reached only by a ladder, and it seemed to be as bare as the bare walls. Wilson completed his survey of the place, and then went and stared at the things on the table. 
Then he silently pointed with his lean forefinger at the open page of the large notebook. The writer had suddenly stopped writing, even in the middle of a word. "'I said it was like an explosion,' said Sir Walter Carey at last. "'And really the man himself seems to have suddenly exploded. "'But he has blown himself up somehow without touching the tower. "'He's burst more like a bubble than a bomb. "'He has touched more valuable things in the tower,' said Wilson gloomily. "'There was a long silence, and then Sir Walter said, seriously,' "'Well, Mr. Wilson, I am not a detective, "'and these unhappy happenings "'have left you in charge of that branch of the business. "'We all lament the cause of this, "'but I should like to say that I myself "'have the strongest confidence in your capacity "'for carrying on the work. "'What do you think we should do next?' "'Wilson seemed to rouse himself from his depression.' and acknowledged the speaker's words with a warmer civility than he had hitherto shown to anybody. He called in a few of the police to assist in routing out the interior, leaving the rest to spread themselves in a search party outside. "'I think,' he said, "'the first thing is to make quite sure about the inside of this place, as it was hardly physically possible for him to have got outside.' I suppose poor Nolan would have brought in his banshee and said it was supernaturally possible, but I've got no use for disembodied spirits when I'm dealing with facts, and the facts before me are an empty tower with a ladder, a chair, and a table. The spiritualists, said Sir Walter, with a smile, would say that spirits could find a great deal of use for a table. I dare say they could, if the spirits were on the table, in a bottle replied Wilson, with a curl of his pale lip. "'The people round here, when they're all sodden up with Irish whiskey, may believe in such things. I think they want a little education in this country.' Hornfish's heavy eyelids fluttered in a faint attempt to rise, as if he were tempted to a lazy protest against the contemptuous tone of the investigator. "'The Irish believe far too much in spirits to believe in spiritualism,' he murmured. They know too much about him. If you want a simple and childlike faith in any spirit that comes along, you can get it in your favourite London. I don't want to get it anywhere, said Wilson shortly. I say I'm dealing with much simpler things in your simple faith, with a table and a chair and a ladder. Now what I want to say about them at the start is this. They're all three made roughly enough of plain wood, but the table and the chair are fairly new and comparatively clean. The ladder is covered in dust and there is a cobweb under the top rung of it. That means he borrowed the first two quite recently from some cottage, as we supposed. But the ladder has been a long time in this rotten old dustbin. Probably it was part of the original furniture, an heirloom in this magnificent palace of the Irish kings. Again Fisher looked at him under his eyelids, but seemed too sleepy to speak, and Wilson went on with his argument. That's quite clear that something very odd has just happened in this place. The chances are ten to one, it seems to me, that it had something specially to do with this place. Probably he came here because he could do it only here. It doesn't seem very inviting otherwise. But the man knew it of old. They say it belonged to his family, so that altogether, I think everything points to something in the construction of the tower itself. 
"'Your reasoning seems to me excellent,' said Sir Walter, who was listening attentively. "'But what could it be?' "'You see now what I mean about the ladder,' went on the detective. "'It's the only old piece of furniture here, and the first thing that caught that cockney eye of mine. But there is something else. That loft up there is a sort of lumber room without any lumber. So far as I can see, it's as empty as everything else.' And as things are, I don't see the use of the ladder leading to it. It seems to me, as I can't find anything unusual down here, that it might pay us to look up there. That's it for Part 2 of The Vanishing Prince by G.K. Chesterton here on Calm Mystery. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production. Part of American Immersion Theatre, Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhouse. If you enjoy Calm Mystery, please take the time to rate us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. It helps spread the word, and the comments let us know what you like and how we can improve. While you're at it, tell a friend who enjoys a good story, or tell an enemy if you need a distraction, and subscribe if you haven't already. That way you won't miss an episode. They'll download to your device when you least expect it. And remember, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM. <laughs>